Good morning, church. Good morning. It is October, so I guess you guys are getting ready for Christmas. Is it too early? No Christmas trees going up yet? <laughs> I want to welcome you guys to El Paso Bible Church. And if you uh, happen to pick up a bulletin, you'll notice uh, just the ongoing events that we have. Um, just to mention two of them. Um, tough topics. A, a new series for the youth group starting today. And uh, we also, uh, women are also meeting for Bible study uh, Tuesdays at 9.30 in the morning and at 6.30 p.m. So uh, they also have a women's fall retreat coming up October 27th. There's more information in the lobby. And I do want to ask uh, Sarah to come up. She has a special announcement as well. I, t I told her I would ask her to come because if I read her, her script, it would sound boring. So. So this year, El Paso Bible Church is participating in the Samaritans uh, First Operation Christmas Child, uh, where they are sent to children all over the world. Uh, so we're asking that you please take a box, or more than one box if you want, and to fill it with toys and other needed or fun items for children. Uh, you can choose to send to a boy or to a girl, and there are three different age levels. There's two to four. 5 to 9 and 10 to 14. And also um, there is a, a list there of suggested uh, items that you can buy. There's also a little thing that says do not send uh, these items. So be sure that you look at that so you know what is not to be sent. Uh, and if you could please return the box back to church by Sunday, November 6th. We are going to, they will be collecting them that next week. So we need to have them by the 6th, if possible, at the latest. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. And the boxes are in the back for you to pick up. Thank you, Sarah. If you want more information, you could speak to Sarah. It's an awesome thing to do. There, there is a little chart there I was looking at in the morning, and it tells you how it gets started. It starts in your house. You pack the box, you bring it to the church, and... Uh, so forth and so on, it gets sent to a kid. That's just another way to uh, share the love of Jesus with other people. I am reading uh, John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for your love and your grace, and that we can express that through our worship, through our songs, through our prayers. And Father, we just want to worship you this morning, and we ask that Everything we do and say may be to glorify your name and make you famous. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Y'all can stand as we worship. Sorrows, Lamb of God, by His 
Stone is a 
sin was heavy The chains break at the weight of your glory I needed shelter, I was an orphan Now you call me a citizen of heaven When I was broken, you were my healing Your love is the air that I'm breathing I have a future, my eyes are open Cause when you call my name moment I see you shaking your head in disgrace I can read the disappointment written all over your face we come those whispers in my ears saying who do you think you are looks like you're on your own front could never reach that far But in the shadow of that shame Being down by all the pain I hear you call my name Saying it's not only mine My heart beat so loud Now drowning out the doubt I'm down but I'm not out There's a war between Guilt and grace And they're fighting for a same but I'm living through Grace wins every time No more lying down In destiny Now I'm rising up In victory Singing hallelujah Grace wins every time Words can describe the way it Floods a thirsty soul Where broken side begins to heal And grace returns with guilty stone But in the shadow of that shame Be down by all the pain I hear you call my name Saying it's not over And my heart starts to beat so loud Now drowning out the doubt
courts above. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. Children, you guys can go on to Children's Church if that's where you're headed today. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John, like I'm doing. Apparently, my bookmark came out. Happens to the best of us, right? I hope you've had a good week, a blessed week. It has been uh, a week full of uh, surprises, like not major surprises, right? But you, know, you have weeks like that where you jump around between one and two and three and four, little, little different ones. Sometimes we call them distractions. So it's nice that we can now uh, recenter, right? Refocus on God's Word and, and worshiping Him and understanding Him and His plan for our lives. So we're going to do that this morning and understand more about His grace to us and what He has for us in this life uh, to live together. So I'd I'd ask that you join with me in prayer as we do that, get ready to do that. Father, we thank You for this day. We do thank You for Your grace to us. Uh, We thank You for Your favor upon us, that You accept each and every one of us simply on the basis of Your Son, His obedience, His faithfulness, simply by grace through faith alone in Him. Uh, It's an unimaginable gift, Father, and we do remember that it is a gift, that there's nothing that we can do to pay pay for it or to pay it off uh, on either extreme. We do nothing because we owe it to you, but because we know that you love us and that you have a a plan for our lives and how we are to live these lives together to your glory. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So here we are in, uh, in 1 John, we're moving, uh, this may not seem like a rocket pace to you guys, right? One of my favorite shows is, uh, one movies in the last few years was a movie called The World's Fastest Indian. You ever watch that show? Uh, amazing, amazing accomplishment for the gentleman there that uh, eventually gets his homemade motorcycle out to the salt flats. Um, and speed, right, is a matter of perception, Right. We're going as fast as we can. We may not be going at the world's fastest Indian place here, but we are moving uh, productively. Uh, but because First John is, is very important, I want to make sure that we review some things. It's my habit. Uh, I, a lot of people, when they, when they tell you how to make a sermon, isn't that kinda, it sounds kind of weird to even say it, right? But you get taught how to make a sermon. You get taught how to do it. And they always have this slot at the beginning for a cute story. And I have rejected the cute story premise almost entirely because I don't care. You shouldn't care about my cute stories all that much, right? We illustrate things and all that. But it's very, very important that you understand the connection of this passage to the ones that go before it, and very important for you to understand it with the connection with the passage that comes after it and how it fits in the Bible. So I've chosen as my standard practice to use this spot not for the cute, heartwarming story, but for the connection. And... um, I didn't ask anybody's permission for it, so I'm not going to ask if that's okay with you. I just did it, so that's okay. But I want you to understand, right, 
Um, I'd probably fail a preaching class if I had to take it again. In fact, I'm in a preaching class right now. You know what? It's so hard, right? Because we don't actually preach the things in this particular preaching class, exegesis to exposition. Um, we, we write it out. Write it out word for word for word for word for commas and colons and the whole bit. Whew. Whew. Slogging through. Anyway, got hard. Anyway. But this is what we do. Uh, but I have to come up with cutesy stories for that one. It's part of the grade. I have to come up with a, 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 that kind of structure. And they, don't wanna, they, they didn't ask permission either. They didn't ask me if that's how I wanted to write it. But here today, that's my choice. So we're going to do that. Remember that we are in 1 John. It's written to believers. Um, the New Testament is written to believers, by the way. Um, I, can, I don't see any context in which any book of the New Testament was written. In fact, I could go beyond that and say any book of the Bible, but any book in the New Testament was actually written to unbelievers. Um, there is content there for the unbelievers to believe, but it is designed to be spoken, right? This is one reason that we're not real, real big on having like 14,000 gospel tracts in the foyer. Because the obligation is yours and mine to speak the gospel, to proclaim it to people, and not to count my, check my box by handing them a little pamphlet, right? So you need to communicate that. That's not what Jesus did when he came, right? When he proclaimed the gospel in he, who's the word, right? The word was in the beginning, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. That means that he came himself to reveal God. He came personally to communicate that information. Anyway, so this book, like all the others, is written to believers. Um, we know that because John includes himself from the very beginning with the first-person plural pronouns, we and us. And very simply, there's a very simple rubric that I use to disambiguate that kind of thing, and, and it is based on the gospel message, right? So... If you take the commands, even in the first chapter of 1 John, and you apply those to an unbeliever to tell them how to go to heaven when they die, you're a heretic. You're a heretic. Because how do you go to heaven when you die? Do you, behave, do you modify your behavior? Some people believe that. Do you modify your behavior? Do you stop living like hell and start living like Jesus to go to heaven when you die? Y'all don't look nearly surprised enough. Absolutely not. You're not. You don't go to heaven when you die based on your behavior modification. You do not. You do not go to heaven based on your obedience. You do not go to heaven based on your faithfulness. That's supposed to be an amen moment, right? You don't go to heaven when you die because you're a good person or somebody was good for you and this earth. You simply go to heaven when you die because Jesus says so, that when you believe in me, you have eternal life. And you cannot make the first chapter of 1 John with behavior modification part of the gospel message. If you do, expect to be shouted down by Pastor Josh. I will stop you. Even in public. I'm Captain Awkward, folks. I will not be polite about it. I'll be as rude as I need to be. One of my friends... Uh, some of y'all listened to him, Dr. Andy Woods, and I was talking to him last year, and we were talking about this. And we talk a lot when we go there, I think, because we're both like this tall, so we're the only eyeballs that meet at this level, at this latitude, walking through the conference. 
And he says, you know, people expect us as pastors to be nicer than Jesus. Whoops. I'm also Captain Unmet Expectations, apparently. (laughs) More than just Captain Awkwardness. I won't be nice about it. I will call you, you whitewashed tomb and you pit of vipers. That's how nice Jesus was when that took place. But there's a continuity of the message, right? It's written to believers. It contains behavior modification, so we know that it has no part in the message of eternal life. And what it says is that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And if, as His children, we walk in darkness, that's, that presents a problem for us. Because God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Can children walk away they're not supposed to? There's a reason this illustration is all the way through the New Testament. Y'all have children, right? They always did exactly what they were told. Especially those pastor's kids. They did everything perfectly. They were little angels. You could put them in the fishbowl, and everyone said, wow, those children, exceptional examples of obedience and behavior. Right, guys? Y'all have, some of y'all have watched my children grow up here, and you know that I'm being absolutely facetious. In fact, we did a lot to make sure that they weren't suffering from the fishbowl and allowed to be children, right? But children can walk the way they're not supposed to. They can make choices they're not supposed to. You, as a child of God, make choices that you're not supposed to. And you walk in darkness. But that doesn't change who God is. God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And at times we all walk in darkness. And so John presents that in order to have fellowship, to be free from discipline, to have freedom to walk according to the Spirit, in step with the Spirit in this life, rather than be under discipline, that we need to seek forgiveness. It is extrajudicial, or no, you could say non-judicial. I say extra because that means outside, right? It's outside of that realm, outside of that environment. It is not a, a courtroom. At best, maybe it's the woodshed, right? I, we didn't have a woodshed, but we still use the phrase. You probably need to go to the woodshed, son. Never had a woodshed. But that's not a courtroom, non-judicial, decides whether you're going to experience discipline or not at its most basic level. And when we do that, Jesus, John says, is our paraclete. He comes alongside of us so that we can have confidence as to what's taking place. Because remember, God is light. (laughs) We could lack confidence, but Jesus is our propitiation, guarantees for us, gives us confidence that this is a non-judicial setting, right? That we have the ability to simply ask forgiveness and to receive it so that we can come out from under the discipline that we've experienced in our life. Now, understand that's not the only thing Jesus is, but that is a crucial one. He is the propitiation, very core concept for us. And we know him, and we can know him, Remember that trusting is not knowing, and knowing is not trusting. Trusting is trusting. Trusting in Christ is what grants us eternal life. Knowing Christ grants us blessing and abundance in this life. Remember the illustration, guys. Um, 
I was reminded by this because my son and his fiance are here. I'm going to embarrass them a little bit, you know. And I, we make this offer to every <coughs> significant other that has walked into our home. I said, y'all are always welcome. If you want to know something about my son, come and ask. I will tell you because you need to know because they are not normal. We raised them to be not normal. That was intentional. But you cannot presume certain things about them because of that. So if you need to know, come ask. You, can, you need to know and you can know. And John offers that, right? You can initiate a relationship based on trust, but, but with a human being, when you initiate a relationship based on trust, you could be disappointed. Yes? You might be disappointed when you come to the knowledge of that other human being. That could happen. It happens in marriages all over the world. Every day, every hour, people I trusted and they have been disappointed. That option is not there for Christ. You are never disappointed when you initiate your relationship, when you are granted identity in Christ simply by grace through faith, by trust in Christ alone, and you come to know Him through obedience, you are never disappointed. You understand His love and you grow to love Him. We're not disappointed. That's the connection. And still some people might say to me, I don't need that. Okay? Or tell me something I don't know. That's another one I get sometimes. By the way, my job is not novelty. My job is not novelty. There are some novel things about me. That's a nice way of saying, you're weird, Pastor Josh. That's okay. But my job is not novelty when it comes to this, and it wasn't John's job. In fact, that's kind of what we're looking at here this morning. He says, verse 7, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment. I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Now, particularly when we come to 1 John, some of the things that I have delineated out of like the first chapter and the first few verses of chapter 2 might be new to you. You may never have heard it talked about that way because the most common way of taking 1 John, and it is extremely common, is what's called that test of life of you. This is the way to test whether you are justified or not. This is a way to test based on the way you act, based on the way you behave, whether you're going to heaven when you die or not. That's a misunderstanding of the nature of faith. It's a misunderstanding of the nature of justification. It's a misunderstanding of a number of things. We don't take that view. So it, but if you haven't been here very long, I have taught First John here a long time ago before, um, and you haven't heard that before, it may be new to you, but understand, John says that it is, it's not new. It is old. Old. Very old. It's from the beginning. Years ago, there was a movie that came out I illustrate my life with movie quotes, if you haven't noticed, a lot of time. Oh, my big fat Greek wedding. Ever watch that? 
hilarious movie, my big fat Greek wedding, and the father is standing there talking to the daughter who eventually gets married. And he looks at her and he says, you look so old. This is not something, fathers, that you should say to your daughter. If there are things like that that need to be said to your daughter, let your wife do it. I mean, sometimes hard things need to be said, right? Okay. When I say something is old, you don't think good things, do you? In fact, one of my primary jobs, there was other duties as assigned at a previous church I was at. First, first meeting I had once I was on staff there in, in my inter-advent period, I call it. That's a joke in between my two times at El Paso Bible Church. The pastor came up to me and he said, Josh, listen, what I'm re- I want you. I, uh, uh, listen, if I ever just sound old up front, I want you to tell me. <laughs> Not on your life, buddy. <laughs> Not on your life. Old. Old is not considered something great in our culture, is it? We try our hardest not to look old. Some of us succeed more than others. What does old mean? I grew up in a shop working on antiques, things that were well past their useful life. I think the oldest thing that my dad worked on, I did not touch it, was a piece of furniture out of a 7th century Irish castle that somehow had made its way to the United States. I have no idea how. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You could say that something old, by definition, is enduring, right? It's stable. It is strong, right? In the spiritual realm, you might say that it is faithful, right? It's old. And I think that's what John is getting at. He's not saying that this is archaic. He's saying that it is an enduring command. It is something that you can grasp onto and know that it connects you to God's plan, an old plan, an enduring plan that has a sure end point. It's old. And they weren't even, it wasn't even new to John's audience. He had spoken it to them. He said, this is from the word which you have heard, but now I'm writing it down. Now I'm writing it down. From the beginning, it's been true. Remember, those are the first words in 1 John. What was from the beginning? And we say it wasn't Genesis 1-1, but more the beginning of the church, perhaps, the beginning of the time in which they were justified people when they heard the gospel and believed it. That was from the beginning. From the beginning that the apostles were identified and were ministering with Jesus, perhaps, you could say, but that. He's telling that you may have forgotten them. You may have forgotten these things, but they're old, and you shouldn't have. So the reason I I emphasize that is because as a whole, I think the church in our experience has an infatuation with novelty. I mean, that's subjective a little bit, right? There are still people out there that would say that El Paso Bible Church is infatuated with novelty. 
because we have a worship team and nobody plays the organ. Those people still walk on the planet these days. They've been around a long time. But it's subjective, right? There is such a thing as an infatuation with novelty, and it is a, it's actually slavery. It's a slavery to the leadership of a church to be infatuated that way because it causes you to forget things. It causes you to forget things that ought not to be forgotten. You get wrapped up in novelty, especially as a leadership team or as a pastor, it will eventually kill you spiritually because it places a tremendous burden on the shoulders of someone that is never designed for them to carry. A lot of them don't have a choice. I mean, I I refer to it as the death roll. You know what the death roll is? Y'all probably aren't hillbillies or Cajun or whatever. When, When the a crocodilian, we talk about alligators, they grab you and then they just roll you underwater over and over and over till you stop breathing. There's a cartoon floating around a pastoral magazine addressing this, right? And it had the senior pastor in one of those human cannons in, this, in the sanctuary. He said, maybe I ought to start preaching the word <laughs> as he's getting ready to get shot out of a cannon out the front door. Sounds absurd. Sounds absurd, but it is not far from the truth. He doesn't want them to forget what was from the beginning. Now, actually, in my tenure at El Paso Bible Church, we've had people move on from here and go to what I would call, you know, to high churches, a a very high liturgical church, and they go to one. And they tell me that, well, because this this is old, this is... This is the old thing. This is the enduring thing. And my response mentally, I, to be honest, I don't chase people. That is one of my basic philosophies of ministry. If you want to be here, be here. If you think I'm too mean, there's a guy that smiles more down the road. If that's your rubric for deciding where you go to church. If you don't like my gun, that's a non-negotiable. I don't chase people. But in my mind, I said, look, that may be old, but that is actually just archaic. It's not old enough. You know, you have this problem, right? Because in, in certain, <laughs> I hate to keep it up, but it, it's re, it is relevant, right? People don't know what an antique is anymore. They don't, do they? I mean, I grew up repairing the things. I know the definition of the thing. And they'll bring me something that they bought from Pottery Barn 30 years ago or something, or 25 years ago, and say, look, I need somebody to restore this antique. And I said, ma'am, your antique can't even burn. I don't know what it's made of. Can't tell. It's just old. In a bad sense. It's broken. It's not repairable. And that's what it is, right? Those may be a tradition. They may be old, but they're not old enough. They're not from the beginning. You won't find those things in the Bible. And what John is saying is that this is a truth that is old, enduring, because it was from the beginning, not 300 years after the beginning or 1,000 years after the beginning, like those things. It's just the next fad, I think. He's not just saying this message was old junk. 
saying this message is the genuine article. We shouldn't be content with archaic things. We need to remember the old things, the enduring things. It's an old commandment. On the other hand, he says in verse 8, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Saying this old thing is now new. It needs to be renewed in your mind, I would say. We are now studying in Sunday school the book of Deuteronomy, right? And the whole point of Deuteronomy is that that new generation that was going to go in and take the land, they needed to be reminded. They needed to have renewed to them the promise and the law and the abundance that God promised them for faithfulness in the land. They needed to be reminded that God had promised them that as they entered, everywhere they took, a step would be theirs and that the Lord would fight for them. They need to be reminded of that thing. They needed to have it renewed to them. And when you have forgotten something that is old, it needs to be renewed. Right? My, my friend Sean, who's, he's actually spoken here, Sean Lazar, was saying this. He was talking to one of his kids, and he said to his kids, you know, it's weird when you get older, the child that you were seems to be like a whole different person. And I remember, because I was a little bit feral when I was a kid, I remember remembering all sorts of things, knowing all sorts of things, things that I knew somehow because I ran wild <laughs> a lot. And I don't remember those. I remember knowing them. I remember perhaps forgetting them, but I don't remember the specifics of them. And it has to be renewed. If you've forgotten, if you've forgotten the centrality of that truth in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, and you wonder why, why I remember my life making more sense. I remember my life working, right? And we're not going to give you three steps to lose weight for Jesus right here and right now. That's not going to happen. But you remember your life working, and you don't know what's missing. You need to remember something needs to be renewed in your understanding of what God has provided for, specifically within the local church in a lot of cases. It needs to be renewed. Not like Amazon renewed, right? Y'all ever bought something renewed by Amazon? They just stick it in another box and ship it back out to you. That's not quite the same picture. It needs to be renewed authentically in our life. Why is that? Because something is taking place. The darkness is being passed away, actually, is the way you should translate that. It's a passive. The darkness is not just declining because it's running out of juice or because it got unplugged and the lamp went out. It's a passive verb. The, the darkness is being passed away effectively, proactively, by some force that is acting upon it, and it is the light. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is working in this way, in a unique way, and we need to understand that. Because do you feel like the darkness is passing away today? I don't often ask you about your feelings because I usually don't care, but I'm asking you about your perception right now. 
When you walked in this morning, would I, and I asked you, is darkness passing away in the world? That is not your perception, is it? No. You feel darkness what? Enveloping you, don't you? You feel it creeping, maybe not creeping, maybe even marching, coming for you. Well, John says something different. He says the darkness is being passed away. And the true light is already shining. It is passing. So this needs to be renewed. You need to understand where we are in history, where you are in the plan of God. We are the church. And we have a specified time to be on this earth, looking forward to being with Jesus forever from the rapture forward, which is imminent. Could happen today, God willing. Right now, God willing. I would gladly yield the floor to the rapture. (laughs) Overjoyed. True light is already shining. So what is your response? We have a, how do we renew this thought in our mind? Verse 9, the one who says he is in the light, walking in the light, that's his experience, not his identity. The one who says that. I'll get to that in a second. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Now, a lot of people that take a different view of 1 John will say, Aha, Josh Meyer, I got you over the barrel. I got you dead to rights. We're putting the screws down. I got you. See, John is talking about an unbeliever there because unbelievers hate believers. No one's arguing that point. Although I will say that some of my best friends in the world, I didn't know if I'd ever be able to say this, Some of my best friends in the world are not believers. They don't just hate me because I love Jesus. But some unbelievers do hate people because they love Jesus. They hate unbelievers. Some unbelievers do hate believers. That's not what John's talking about, is it? He says it right there. (laughs) Said this to a Greek prophet of mine, and he was dumbfounded for about three minutes. I don't know. It was something that I haven't noticed, right? The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother. Now, an unbeliever may hate a believer, but does an unbel- can an unbeliever hate his brother? What does brother mean in 1 John? Talking about Eli, Adam, and Luke, my brothers. Talking about your brother, Micah, Gideon, or Simeon, or Thaddeus. It's not talking about your male siblings. It's a brother in the Lord, isn't it? So John couldn't say that about an unbeliever. Only a believer can hate his brother. And people, they just can't. They just can't be true believers and hate their brother. Folks, what world are you living on? Most of y'all have been in church a long time, I would guess. And you've never run across a believer that hates another believer? You may have had your head in the sand. John says that. He says, you, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness up to that moment, until now, up 
up until the point. While hate is existing, he is in the darkness. Now remember, that's not an identity in John. That's a location. He is chosen not to walk in the light. He has chosen, though his identity is as a child of God, he has chosen an immoral direction to walk. He's in the darkness. And he's a hypocrite at that moment. It's funny. You know, people say to me over the years, I can't go to church, right? Too many hypocrites there. Where are you going where there are no hypocrites? The bar is full of hypocrites. The mall is full of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. It is. Humanity is full of hypocrites. That's almost definitive for humanity. You know, the only people that I would say are probably not hypocrites are the deepest, darkest sociopaths <laughs> in the world. They may be the only exception to the rule of hypocrisy because they hate you and they love hating you. They love doing harm and they're honest about it. So maybe there's a small circle of people you could find that don't suffer from hypocrisy. A brother hates his brother. He is in sin. And sin that needs to be confessed. If a brother says, I'm walking in the light, but I hate him, that's a lie. That's a lie. And we need to remember, right, because we impute love to people that we shouldn't. Um, I have, uh, occasionally I hear through the grapevine that people think I don't like them. Or, and it's news to me. This is just my face, folks. It's just my face. I probably should do what my mama said and smile more, but it is just my face. Don't presume that my face being my face, it means that I don't like you or don't love you. Because that's not the definition of love, is it? We've talked about this over and over and over again. Shaking your hand as you come through the door is not love. Because that's not a command that Jesus issued. Loving people is to walk obediently, to act obediently to Christ's commands as to how to interact with other people. It is not to remember their birthday. It's not to send them a nice little loaf of banana bread when they visit church, necessarily. That could be showing hospitality. And on the flip side, right, hate has a definition, and that is to be disobedient to the way Christ has instructed me to, te to treat other people. It's not about your feelings at all. It's about the choices you make in your relationship to other people. See, this comes up when I do occasional marital counseling with people. Usually it's one person. I don't know how I'm supposed to do marital counseling with one person. But it comes up. And they will say to me, I love this person, but I do this and this and this and this. And I said, well, 
Here's the problem. You don't love that person. Because love has symptoms. It has symptoms. Even love for Jesus, right? It has symptoms. The symptom is obedience. The symptom is how you treat other people in this case. It is not a proclamation. That is hypocrisy to say that I love someone and then do these things to them, disobedient to Christ. You mistake love for endorphins. Love is not endorphins. Love is a pleasant consequence, or endorphins are a pleasant consequence to love. But it is not the definition. That's your problem. That's my problem. Lying about that sin causes stumbling for people. The converse is true. Verse 10 says, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. You know the word for stumbling? I wish they just kind of transliterated it like they do with baptize or... It's scandalon. It would preach a lot better if they just called it, there's no cause for scandal in him. That's not exactly what scandalon means. I wish they did the same thing. When, when Paul says that your good works are um, as f- filthy rags, scubalon, I think scubalon preaches a lot better than rags. I just wish they transliterated but then we'd realize how earthy Paul was, and you guys would mostly be offended by the poor Apostle Paul every time we open the book. Just suffice it to say, I'm very much more polite than he is. If you actually read what he actually said. But a non-hypocritical love, one that matches your testimony. There is no cause for stumbling. You know somebody that, that uh, can't walk and chew gum at the same time? Don't raise your hand if you're that person. I'm asking if you know somebody like that. See, because some people will stumble even if there's no reason for it, right? That's my point. Some people will stumble over nothing at all. That's not your problem. That's not your problem. You are obligated, because we're getting to a point, we need to discuss this, right? You are responsible for obeying Christ because obeying Christ is how you know Him and it's how you love other people. And when you do that, there's no cause for stumbling. Now, if there's no cause for stumbling, why is everybody mad when you love them? Because you didn't give them their endorphin allotment. You didn't smile enough at them. You were not nice enough to them. Again, nothing to do with the matter. This comes up a lot. I cannot, to use my See my brother-in-law? I know he's your brother-in-law. Dennis. Is it Dennis? He's my brother? He's your brother-in-law. 
famous for using big vocabulary words with small children. You all thought I was the winner of that, but I'm not. I cannot obfuscate the truth. Say that to a four-year-old once. I cannot obfuscate the truth and love you. I cannot lie to you and love you. Right? That's not being obedient to Christ. There's all sorts of hereditary colloquialisms for that sort of thing that come to mind that I'm not allowed to say. But I can't do that. But I can, I can, I can jump your endorphin levels up real high by lying to you. So if you make the mistake that a, a, your endorphins are love, you've got a problem. Because then you're going to beg me to lie to you so that you feel loved. But you don't have to do that. The one who loves his brother abides, remains in the light. That's about his location, his realm. No cause for stumbling in him. Verse 11 says this, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now again, people get uncomfortable here because they think that John is making a distinction between an unbeliever and a believer, that he's testing whether you are going to heaven when you die or when you're not. And, it, and, and they think that the Bible only says nice things about believers. Can the Bible... Can, <laughs> The Bible only says nice things to us. Our endorphin levels will go up, but are we loved? No. We already covered that, right? The Bible speaks truth into our lives, the truth that we need, because the author of the Bible loves us. I have a brother, the one who has a brother, who hates his brother, is in darkness, and he walks in the darkness. If he makes a choice, despite his identity, despite his privilege and the opportunity and the blessing that comes from walking in the light, should he choose to walk in the darkness, he does not know where he is going. Real thinker to come up with that one, right? I mean, that's the definite. We're not used to dark, right? We're used to dimness. We have light pollution everywhere. You can't get away from it. So you don't, you're not familiar, I don't think, with actual darkness. It, it's actually been identified as a method of torturing somebody, driving them absolutely insane. You stick somebody in a dark room and nothing but their boxer shorts, they'll go crazy in less than a week. Your eyes cannot adjust to dark. Your eyes can adjust to wide varieties, wide-ranging differences in dimness and brightness. But your eyes cannot function in the dark. And if you knew what was there, you would never go there because you value your sanity, don't you? Right? I hope you value your sanity because only insane people don't. It's kind of a circle, circular reasoning, right? You would never choose to go there. It's not a wise choice. He says it's about a believer 
who can hate his brother, that he's in the darkness. He walks in the darkness. He does not know where he's going. He's ignorant as to the direction he can go. He's ignorant as to the direction that he ought to go. He's blinded. Establishes a set of priorities in our lives as believers, doesn't it? Tied up very tightly in how we treat each other obediently and and to making sense of our activities in the world at all. And it's something, and I'll be, I will be honest with you, y'all expect that from me, right? Not everybody likes it. That over the years that I have been here, there are people that have left, well, that happens in churches, because they don't like our philosophy of ministry. Because it is nearly proverbial out there in, the, in church environments that every church, in order to be healthy and in order to grow, needs to be nearly exclusively externally focused. That you need to be constantly engaged in programs and efforts of evangelism towards unbelievers. And if you're not doing that, then you can't be faithful as a church. What does John say? The, the most frequent obstacle in order of priority here in terms of fellowship with the apostles and fellowship with God the Father and God the Son so we can have full joy and f- complete joy is how we treat our brothers in Christ. When I hear somebody say that they have a church that is 100% externally focused, I think that that's a sin. And it's also a distraction. That always bothered me when we had four or five kids under, you know, below my waist, some closer to my knee. And we were caveman parents. I know Priscilla doesn't look like a caveman, and I do, but we were both caveman parents. It would drive me crazy. I would be trying to instruct my children, and, and other adults in the room are just trying to distract them, like a parenting method. Just distract them. Don't inform them. Don't give them wisdom. Don't teach them. Just distract them away from the wickedness they're about to commit against their siblings. And I feel like that's actually a ministry philosophy for many churches. As long as we're focused on teaching this message outside of our walls, then we don't have time to fight each other. And maybe that works for a while, but let me tell you what, those toddlers are inventive. And if you keep a local church at the spiritual level of toddler, they will find a way to kill each other. And the way to ensure that they stay at a spiritual toddler level is to be solely externally focused. Especially if you have a clear and simple gospel message that eternal life is received simply by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
Everyone who believes that message receives eternal life. I don't need to give you 13 weeks of nightly training to teach you that, do I? Do I need to do that? You wouldn't come if I said, I, I have a 900-hour master's level course and telling people how to believe in Jesus. And you would be foolish to do that. Because you don't need it. You just need to tell people that truth. But we're obligated to love each other. Obediently, knowledgeably, wisely doing what Christ has ordered us to do, commanded us to do in our relationships with each other. How we love each other. See, I, I do understand that the church is an evangelistic entity. People get upset. You mean I'm not supposed to tell people about Jesus? Didn't I just take like five minutes telling you that you need to tell people about Jesus? You need to do that. I need to do that. All of us need to do that. The Great Commission, by the way, was not given to the church. It was given to the apostles for the foundation of the church. But the church is an evangelistic entity, but it is not evangelistic in the way that the modern mind thinks of it as. We're not supposed to make all of our programs about attracting unbelievers, gospel preaching by gratifying narcissism, actually. That's the negative way of saying a lot of ministry philosophies out there. We're not supposed to gratify people's narcissism and then bait and switch them into believing in Jesus. The biblical pattern that we see in Acts is to love each other obediently over and over and over and over. And then what happens? The Lord adds to their number daily. I think a church that is 100% focused on external evangelism is actually walking in darkness and being led that way. I'm so nice, aren't I? I'm just nice. That's my opinion. I owe that to you, by the way. That's my understanding. When we say opinion, it's my understanding of Scripture. It disagrees with other people. That's okay. But a lot of them are walking around blinded because they are not focusing on loving their brother. They're not focusing on what the church is supposed to be doing. But an obedient local church is evangelistic. And that's the way God designed it to be. You can hang around with a lot of people that hate your guts at any office in the United States, right? Some of the extroverts are like, there are people that hate my guts? It's probably the introverts in the room. Not in this room, but I mean in the office. If you spend five days a week or six days a week in a bunch of people in an office that hate your guts but get along because they need a paycheck and the church is not very different, then why come to church? It's just more of the same. You ought to go bass fishing. If the church is just like your office, your call center or whatever. So we dare not be like that 
if we're to tell people what the church is, what the Bible says it is, and don't produce it, we dare not be hypocritical on that point. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it does not mince words about your children who are not obedient. And that clearly states the consequences of disobedience and the blessings of obedience. We thank you for that. There is no God like you, and we love you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? For the prodigal son, for the woman at the well, for the blind man and the beggar, for always and forever, for the lost out on the street, for the worst part of human me, for the thief on the cross. That's lost. There's a war between guilt and grace, and they're fighting for a sacred space. But I'm living through grace wins every time. No more lying down, testing. No, I'm rising up in victory. this visit.